Welcome to this pop-up podcast series, Magic and Mayhem, Discover the Secrets to Creating Magnificent Books for Kids and Teens. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. Magic and Mayhem, if you're new to it, is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on this journey and enhance your own writing skills. One great way to do that is to download your free ebook from magicandmayhem.com.au. It is an awesome ebook that will give you some great insights from all of the authors featured in this podcast series and will give you some great tips on what you need to know to write for kids and teens. Download your free ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. I'm Valerie Koo, I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre, and this episode we're talking to Nicole Hayes. Nicole is an award-winning author and writing teacher. She has published several young adult novels. Nicole is also one of the superstar creative writing presenters at the Australian Writers' Centre, and stay tuned to find out how she can help you explore your story ideas. One of Nicole's great passions is Australian rules football, so she has also co-written a book about women in footy and edited another book about diverse voices in football. Her latest book is A Shadow's Breath, a young adult novel. As you'll hear in my chat with Nicole, it was a difficult novel to write because of the separate timelines. In fact, she found herself curled up in the fetal position in sheer exasperation. But she worked through it, of course, and it really is a fabulous book. Here's Nicole. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Belle. Oh, you know what? This book, you know how like there are some stories, there are some books that, you know, they're, they're good books and, they're, and that's, that's, that's great. And there are some books that are great stories, and, but when I read them, I feel that they're great stories that, that have been written down. And there are some books that just unfold in front of your eyes. I don't actually feel like I'm reading because this world just... I'm just wandering through this world, you know, that 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 just opens up before me, and this is one of those books. Oh, and yay! <laughs> I just, I just think it's wonderful. But for those readers who have not yet read the book yet, listeners as well, can you tell us, in your words, what this book is about? A Shadow's Breath. I certainly can. A Shadow's Breath is about Tessa Gillum, whose life changes forever after a car accident in mountainous bushland, um, injured her survival in the bush um, with her injured boyfriend. Both of them are struggling to find their way down the mountain. That's their only way of survival. But along the way, they're fighting the elements and also the tension between them. And we also, uh, in the process of this story, dip back into the events leading up to the crash to uncover the reason that Tessa is afraid to go home. Mm-mm. Now, there are, as you've just said, it's kind of mm. like two timelines in this book. And was that hard to be? It, there is the timeline of the you know, um, before the crash, but also, as you said, what happens um, from the crash. What, how hard was that to balance or juggle or did you just think, you know, I'm just going to go from one to the other and, and, and see how that works? <laughs> and I just magicked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that magic. was a breeze. <laughs> no, actually um, there were several points. So basically that you've got the now and the then chapters and they just mm. alternate every all the way until they converge near the end um, at the climax. And so um, I actually started writing them 
consecutively so that I'd have one now and then one then chapter mm-hmm. and alternate. And then there was a point where I couldn't do that. So I actually separated the two strands. I used Scrivener to do this, by the way, which I hadn't used before. It was all very new for me. Mm. Um, and just and so that I, I just couldn't keep track of the story when I kept switching between what had happened and, you know, what was happening. So the survival story is the one that takes place in the present tense in the now chapters. And the then, cha- the then chapters deal with Tessa's life before and, and leading up to the days um, to the day that she gets in the car with uh, Nick, her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of uncovers the things that drove them out there in the first place. So, And that's written in past tense as well. So just even the shifting in tenses, mm-hmm. I, there was a point where I had to, I just wrote one strand and then another. And then, uh, you know, I didn't do it all the way through because I had to make sure each one led into, because they were alternating, they still had to make sense and they had to cross mm-hmm. over. So the transition between each of them crossed over from the now and then narratives. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was really as <laughs> complex as it sounds. It was wow. quite, there was definitely one point where I was sitting with this novel literally in pieces around me thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? Like I am never going to pull this together. What was I thinking? <laughs> so when you were thinking that... What did you do? Well, after I I got out of the fetal position um, <laughs> and had a very stiff coffee, um, I I basically just thought, right, I'm just going to stick to the strands separately. I'm just going to tell that story, that part of the story, in order, and then go to the you know, and then switch to the other narrative, and in the process of um, editing at the end, that's when I would make sure they transitioned. And I just, I went back to, because I'm a pantser, not a plotter, I, I tend to write as I go. That was the point where I realised I couldn't get away with that anymore. So I just basically sketched out what each chapter was going to contain and that way they could, I was aware that they weren't, re- one narrative wouldn't reveal too much in the other narrative until right. it was supposed to basically. So, and really I, it's just persistence. That's all it was. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's time and persistence. That's, that's all that I changed really. Right. Well, it's paid off because it's interesting. You've just said that um, one timeline is written in present tense and one timeline is written in past tense. And, you know, I read books, critically all the time or, or, or I can't help but analyse them. And I was obviously so absorbed in this book that I did not even notice that, you know, so well done on just making the whole thing so seamless. Um, now, where, how in the world did the idea for this book form? Did you think, oh, I'm going to write a two-timeline story or did you think, I, 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 did you start off with the crash? Did you start off with the town? It's kind of set in a small town. How did it start? Yeah, it definitely started with that crash. Um, basically, I just, uh, it was one of, it was, I occasionally do these sort of Zen writing exercises where I just do a little bit of free writing. And this idea of the Australian bush, the first sentences, which really um, were probably the, uh, I think maybe the second or third chapter, they ended up becoming that, um, of this sense of the landscape, this description of landscape. And before I knew it, someone you know this young woman was waking up and she had some sort of brain injury or some kind of injury anyway and she had been in a car accident so it was literally just a bit of wild writing at the start Mm. and and then and that first chapter 
you know, that was probably like the third or fourth paragraph I wrote. That ended up being the first chapter. And then once I had her waking up, it actually came, became quite clear. I just, all that I had at that point was she lived in a small town and she didn't want, she was afraid to go home and was in this car. And even at the beginning, it wasn't, I didn't even know that she was going to be in this car with anybody until actually Nick appeared a few chapters later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really that um, organic in that sense at the beginning. However, having said that, I had stuff I wanted to talk about. I just didn't know that this was the story that was going to do it, if what that makes sense. What was the stuff that you wanted to talk about? Well, I was really interested in the idea, you know, in my first two novels, maybe not as much in the whole of my world, but certainly in one true thing. Home is a sanctuary. It was a, a, really a sanctuary for Frankie and even for Shelley in the whole of my world, there is that there are these people that make her feel safe and at home. And in the course of writing all the you know, writing these books and meeting a lot of young people, it became really clear to me that there are a whole lot of kids who aren't safe going home, that actually they're safer out of the home and that places that we take for granted like school or, you know, the footy or whatever whatever it is they go to, that's actually their escape. Because they're, you know, for whatever reason, they've got, you know, uh, neglectful parents or no parents or, you know, drug or alcohol or family violence happening in their homes. They are afraid to go home. And it was really important to me. I knew that I had to deal with this at some point because it was happening. It was coming up too often. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to make sure that kids who felt like that had story were hearing their stories being told as well. Mm-hmm. This... When I was reading this book, because um, I think I read your other book over a year ago now, or mm. yeah, definitely over maybe eighteen months ago or something, um, it sounds different to your other books. If that makes sense, does that? I can't oh, find yeah. any other way to. to yeah. D- did you do that consciously, or did you decide I'm going to, you know, adapt my style a bit, or? Um, yeah, I, I, look, I, I'm not. I can't say it's it's conscious. It, it's not conscious at the start, but then it becomes it as once I realise that there's this thing happening and it's this style that's that I'm re, I'm really enjoying writing mm. and and really it was the I think it was the waking though that very, what became the first chapter that style of this sort of disconnected this somewhat removed voice um, because it's told in third person, which is also new for me. My first two books were told in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, As soon as I did that, I knew this was going to be different and it was just whether I wanted to sustain that or not, whether I felt I could sustain it and because Mm -hmm. it was such a a leap from what I had done before. Um, And then it just became about I was just having so much fun writing in this voice and I was having so much fun really sort of exploring language and challenging myself in um, presenting things in this different style that, um, you know, admittedly about halfway through I thought, oh, my God, again, I'm in over my head, (laughs) which I'm realising happens a bit for me. But um, Mm -hmm. that was probably the point where it became a little bit more conscious. But when I'm in those chapters, in particular I think the – the now chapters is where the style is so different to what I'd written in the past. Mm. It was, as a writer, one of the most joyful, challenging but joyful writing experiences I've had. Just, just really? in, you know, yeah, really just in sparse language, um, mm. 
just kind of moving through ideas and images very quickly and also being able to be brief like that. Um, a lot of those chapters, you know, they might be a paragraph or two long, some of them. Yep, yep. It, it, we've said that it's set in a small town and it brings in various elements uh, uh, that are, you know, specific to, to small towns. Um, did you grow up in a small town? Not even a bit, no. <laughs> I'm a Melbourne girl born and bred. Um, I, you know, though, having said that, I did grow up in Glen Waverley and now it, it's, you know, a very popular, very densely populated suburb. But um, I'm not going to say how many years ago, but there are decades involved, let's say, when <laughs> I was growing up. Um, it really was like my friends would joke. I had to travel quite a way to go to school and my friends would joke about me taking a picnic to get, you know, a cut lunch to make it out to my home and we're out in the sticks and that kind of a thing. So, And there was a sense that everybody knew everybody and, you know, it did feel a little bit like a small town in that way and and I think perhaps I was drawing on that but really it was simply because I thought I've had two very Melbourne stories mm. and I just I just wanted to you know I just thought there's more than this you know this is uh, this if I'm going to represent Australia there's more than just one city there's more than just the city mm. and um the landscape you know I I felt like if she had for her to be truly isolated, she needed to be somewhere where there weren't going to be a lot of options for her and that's where the small town kind of seemed an obvious place to locate her. Everyone knows her. There's no escaping um, and there are perhaps not the services available that might be in a bigger city. So it, it sort of all gelled together and I don't know which happened first but it made it um, – it created the right environment for Tessa to really feel kind of on her own in the way she does. Mm -mm. there's little um, descriptions the way you describe you know just the movement of someone's hand even or um, even some of the dialogue that's that's in here there's so many subtle things that you include but they speak volumes and I feel that that can only happen or a writer can only do that if they're if that writer spends a lot of time observing people. Um, <laughs> do you do that? Yeah, I do. I do. Like and consciously I, and writing things down like how they did move their hand and stuff, you know? No, I, look, I probably don't do enough of that. I probably need to, which is I think a challenge, you know, one of the challenges I have and I think, again, this is me pushing myself, was to more consciously um, note these sorts of things, rather than just subconsciously have them happening in my mind and hoping hoping that I can draw on them when the writing takes place. I actually made more of an effort to do that here and to even just from reading more and paying more attention as I was reading about different ways that we move, different ways that we look, different ways that people carry themselves. Um, as a Just because I do think, you know, we, we aren't in each other's heads. We, we rely entirely a lot of our communication happens silently. It's what, what we are doing and what people are doing or not doing when we're in each other's company. So it was really more initially just because I was sort of sick of saying the same things and, and aware that I had these patterns in my writing that I needed to break. Ah. Um, you know, we do. We've got oh, – I've got eyes and looking. I've got to stop that. You know, I get really caught up in expressions. I really need to, to sort of think about the – the physicality, and that's what I wanted to do in this story, is really push myself in every way, including being a bit more creative in how 
Tessa um, would relate and understand what was happening around her and how people were behaving around her. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about some of the time frames, like in in involved in the book, as in? Um, I thought of the idea he, this at this point, then it took me X number of months before I wrote the first draft and then it took me however long before I, you know, it, it had it edited and stuff. Can you just give us some key milestones so people get and get an idea of the gestation period? Um, yeah, I, I would have started this, um, gee, a year and a half, almost two years ago. Uh, it was when, yeah, it's when One True Thing had come out or was in the process of coming out and that was 2015 Mm. um so yeah 18 months probably and uh it it was really those first chapters came very quickly um probably the first 20,000 words I think it's about 30,000 words I hit that point and that's a common point for me Mm. um you know only a few months in they come very very quickly and then suddenly it's it's I hit a bit of a wall and that's usually because I've run out of outline (laughs) you know I've got my I've got my ending often um or a sense of the ending and I've got my big kind of moment and I Mm. I'm very comfortable and very smooth at getting that opening that comes very naturally but the big bulky part of the story um you know that second act if and I do tend to sort of follow a rough three-act structure that's the one that bogs me down and I invariably um hit a bit of a wall there and it's a, a point where I have to force myself to start kind of listing and outlining some key moments. Not not too deep, not much detail at all actually, but just to give myself some direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did do that, but it wasn't really helping. And then we got up to NaNoWriMo that oh, year. Yeah. So that would have been, yeah, and, and I, um, I spent a day, P.D. Martin is a crime writer. I don't know if she... I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Philippa um, is an old friend of mine and she was running um, some NaNoWriMo workshop days and I spent one day, you know, she let me sort of just jump in for one day, one Sunday at the convent actually where Mm -hmm. I teach classes with the Australian Mm -hmm. Writer Centre. And it was literally, I think it was from 10 till 5 and we wrote with breaks every two hours and it was, you know, it was just a fab, you know, bunch of people just sitting there and writing and I knocked out 13,000 words, 13,500 words in, in one day. Oh, yes. my God. It will never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I broke something inside of me in the process. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it was really, I just was quite possessed and, you know, probably half of it I threw out but it, I absolutely broke the spine of the of the story in that time and it was wow. simply by pushing through and forcing myself to just keep writing even if what I was writing was really bad. Yeah, um, yeah and, I, and in, in that process it's when I kind of knew this is the thing that has to happen and this is, and, you know, I'm going to speak very vaguely, this is, this is the big um, prop, this is the big reveal. This is the thing that's going that's going to um, ultimately test her the most, and all of the it all just fell. And and after I knocked off those thirteen and a half thousand words, I don't think I went. I was like I said, a little shattered after that. I don't think I went, really. It was quite. I mean, it was amazing while it was going, and then I stopped. And it's it's a little bit like when you exercise. You know, you you do a marathon, and you feel yeah. really good for about five minutes afterwards, and then you sort of fall on the ground and think, "I'm not doing that again for for a while." Um, it was a little like that. And forever. then I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, forever probably would have been smarter. I think, but um, maybe a month later, 
I because I felt like I'd done the hard bit, I just went back into it. And so probably I had deliver I had to deliver a first draft. I think it was the end of January. Mm. So the rest of the book came together in those next what three months, two and a half months. Wow. And so you mentioned that um, uh, you teach for us at the Australian Writers' Centre in Melbourne at um, the beautiful Abbotsford Convent. And I know you also sometimes work out of the Australian Writers' Centre studio at the convent. How important is it to you to get away from writing at home? Like, why do you? Uh, Yeah, I I really need to. I, I, I find even before I was able to use, you know, even when I can't always get to Abbotsford, um, which is my preferred place, that's for sure, um, even just to walk to a local cafe, if I've only got an hour or a couple of hours, mm. I struggle to work right at home. I mean, there are t- mm. times when I have to when I'm on deadline and it's just, you know, hours straight and I've got to work overnight or I wake up mm. very early in the morning. Um, the only time I can really write at home is very effectively anymore seems to be if I wake up at four or five and before everyone's awake, you know, I have kids, mm. I have a husband, I have a dog <laughs> who's, mm. who, uh, you know, plonks his head on my lap and makes me feel guilty that I'm not walking him. So mm. all of these things are conspiring to give me an excuse not to, to write. So I, mm. it's, it's really just a, a discipline thing. It's too easy to get caught up in the stuff at home. Yeah. Um, so I have to physically remove myself. I cannot be dragged into putting another load of washing on or starting dinner if I'm physically not in the house. And so I have to remove myself at points. Um, Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, and it's been a godsend having having access to an office too. It's been massive. Yeah, awesome. (laughs) So you also co-host your own podcast. It's not about writing. It's got nothing to do with writing. No. (laughs) The Outer Sanctum. Can yes. you just tell us briefly um, what it's about and why you're involved in this podcast? Um, the Outer Sanctum is a podcast, an AFL podcast that is an all-female podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it was the first of its kind. So um, we only started last year, 2016, right before um, the football season, the AFL football season started, mm-hmm. and it's a bunch of there's six of us and we're all mad Hawthorne fans actually although we try not to talk about Hawthorne too much (laughs) and we we got I actually got to know almost all of them it is kind of connected to books because my first novel The Whole of My World is um about a teenage girl who's obsessed with footy and you know it's sort of loosely vaguely moderately based on my teen experiences (laughs) as a Hawthorne fan so um Alicia sometimes interviewed me on Triple R and we kind of became friends and then I met Emma Race and um her sisters Lucy and um Felicity as a result of because they you know they loved my book which was lovely and they reached out to me online and Katie Sears the um sixth member and she uh is a really good friend of Emma's so we kind of all just had this little group of Hawthorne tragics we um, mm-hmm. direct message on Facebook when the footy was on and mm-hmm. I don't know we they we got involved Alicia and I got involved in um decided to collaborate on this um collection of football stories from the outer mm-hmm. um, and through that we in we curated some of these conversations that the outer sank or these they weren't called that then but these women our little direct messages um, became were curated like into poems almost and we scattered them throughout um, from the outer and, I don't know, we, we had a few glasses of wine over dinner to celebrate and 
we should, you know, someone threw out the idea, we should start a podcast. And I don't know, I think three days later we did our first episode. Oh, it was quite crazy. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it, um, it gained quite a big profile uh, over the course of last year, so you, <laughs> you've done really well with it. Um, yes, <laughs> it did. So let's just go back to the book, From the Outer. It's mm-hmm. From the Outer, Footy Like You've Never Heard It. That was released last year and you co-edited it um, with Alicia. Uh, oh, how did this idea come about and why did you think, Oh, let's do a collection of football stories. Well, I've always, as I've admitted, I'm already a footy tragic. Um, mm. But honestly, again, it came from the whole of my world. I, uh, Alicia and I did kept being invited to do gigs together to talk about footy and and you know the the idea of women and and inclusiveness and or exclusiveness and how a lot of um, people who like us women or people from different cultures and different backgrounds, people with disabilities, how there are still many of us still love the game, but the game hasn't always loved us back. And so many people approached us with their stories and we knew a whole bunch of writers who were kind of closet footy fans. Mm. Um, You know, there's this sort of sense that football is somehow anti-intellectual and we were really you know, um, determined to dispel that notion um, that if you can't sort of be a thinking person and also love sport. So we, you know, came up with the idea of giving voice to some of these um, stories. And so we had some awesome writers. We had Tony Birch, we had Alan Van Nieuwen, um, uh, Maxine Bedford-Clark, we, we, Christos Chalkis. We just, mm. every writer we, we knew who had a complex relationship with the game for some reason or another, usually because of either their um, cultural background or their sexuality or even just their gender, um, and got them to tell us their story about how, you know, their relationship and whether it's about why they love the game or how it's soured for them. Um, but for the most part, it's this, you know, kind of homage to footy and, and, a, and a request for football to, to sort of step up and, and deserve us, I think, is probably mm. <laughs> what we had in mind, you know, that, that there's all these people here who don't always feel included and, and need to. And so when you co-edit an anthology like that, how do you brief the people? Is it literally his X number of words and write about footy or do you coach them along to, to shape their story as well? Uh, no, we probably didn't have to do a lot of that. There are only a few writers there who who were new and didn't already have a strong sense of right. what they wanted to say. Um, we definitely had word limits, but they were pretty flexible. I think we said between three and five thousand, which is a pretty big, you know, space. Um, most mm. of them hit in around the three thousand word mark, mm-hmm. and almost all of them. Yeah, almost all of them knew what they wanted to, to write about. They were just really excited to have the opportunity to write about something people don't normally ask them to talk about, mm. um, you know, and we found, if anything, it was there were all these people afterwards saying, why didn't you ask us? We would have yeah. you know, it was really it was really eye-opening actually to see how many people have a story to tell. Um, yeah. But, there, you know, there was, a, there was still a lot of editing and we had to – the challenge I think was the biggest challenge in bringing all of this together is one um, – 
I, I am a writer, you are a writer, I love writers, but we're not fantastic when it comes to being organised. So <laughs> um, hitting deadlines, you know, some are better at it than others and yeah. sending invoices, all of that sort of stuff. Um, that was the really time-consuming aspect um, initially that kind of really sort of dragged things down. The actual editing process um, of, you know, cleaning up the individual pieces and working with the author, that was actually very smooth. And um, I did sort of the first round and then um, Joe Rosenberg was our editor at Black Ink. She did a final um, and worked with the more directly with the, each individual writer at that sort of final stage. Um, the next biggest challenge was the order of stories and, mm. and making sure, yeah, because you want to hit the right tone, you want to yeah. sort of change it up a little bit, um, you don't want to sort of have a really kind of sad, there's, you know, a lot of stories, um, football stories that we ended up with had a lot to do with, you know, a father or a grandfather who'd introduced them to the game mm-hmm. and how, you know, often it was an expression of their grief or their loss yeah. or something. So getting that tone right and making sure that they didn't jar against each other, that mm-hmm. was really challenging. That's probably what, That was probably the thing that took us the longest in the end. Yeah, getting the right pacing and the right, yeah, experience for the reader, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. So... Being a footy tragic, um, mm. I understand that you have another book coming out uh, about football as well. Yeah. Um, Alicia and I have um, collaborated again with Black Ink on a kid's book, actually. This time I don't usually write for the younger. This is a primary school, 7 to 12-year-old children. I'm going to say predominantly girls. And it's called A Footy Girl's Guide to the Stars of 2017. And it's just a collection of um, the personal stories of eight players from the women's competition, the, the brand new AFL women's competition that starts on February 3rd is the first game. And the book comes out that day too. So it's, um, or I think it comes out just before that. And basically we just did, we interviewed the um, one player from each club and, uh, you know, asked them a little bit about their experiences of football as while they were growing up, how they came to the game, what the um, competition means to them, you know, what their routine is, that sort of thing, as well as some fun stuff, you know, what their favourite food is, and you know, what what um, what's the worst thing about being a footballer? All sorts of questions that hopefully um, will appeal to kids, and yeah. just to, as a way of kind of. You know, these women are amazing what they've had to accomplish well beyond what's on the field. They've got, you know, careers they've had to put on hold. They've got um, partners that they've left in another state or family. Mm. This is, it, it's an enormous thing that's being asked of them and it's, it's, and yet they feel it's such a privilege. So we really want to give mm. them an opportunity to, to just to kind of celebrate them and, and the incredible achievement of finally, finally mm. um, having a women's competition, which is, you know, very Belated. Wow, you're really into AFL, aren't you? <laughs> okay, right. Okay, enough <laughs> AFL. We're going to go yep. back to the <laughs> a yep. shadow's breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I was just thinking when you when we were talking about uh, you know people having stories about the football that first thing I thought of was I am so not a football tragic not even close like I'm like the opposite to you um but then I thought oh my god the last short story I wrote was set in the AFL 
How weird's that? <laughs> that is really weird. <laughs> so funny. Very strange. But anyway, back to a shadow's breath. What um was the what was the most challenging thing about this book that was probably different to your other books, your other novels? Um, I think unlike every other book or you know that I've written or a story I mean even from the out I wrote a story of my childhood um and I've written manuscripts that haven't been published as well Mm. this is the first one where I really wasn't drawing much at all on my own story or 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 drawing on something that is a you know that was has always been a lifelong interest for me so for example in the whole of my world it's footy and she's obsessed with football Mm. um and and it's in first person so I sort of was able to sort of inhabit Shelley in that way and really much of her experience was just conjuring or remembering what I experienced and or other people around me and I was able to sort of filter that through within the construction the story construction but also um draw on very authentic experiences that I could relate to Mm -hmm. Um, in one true thing, my two other loves, apart from footy and, and books <laughs> and writing, are politics mm. and um, you know music. And I really, I have no musical talent whatsoever, but I am a huge fan of Pearl Jam in particular. Mm-hmm. And you know, I got to really, even though Frankie is a very different personality to to me, I was able to sort of express my love for these two things in the context of this story. So I really didn't have to do a lot of research, for example. I was able to just draw on stuff I already know. Um, you know, I majored in politics as an undergraduate. It's been a very, even as a teenager, I was quite political and it's always mattered to me. So I didn't have to do too much in the way of um, research or really have to familiarise myself too much with something I wasn't familiar with, except that Frankie played guitar, was learning guitar, mm-hmm. and even then a lot of my research was the fact that my daughter was, you know, studying guitar and was around the same age and I could, you know, it was all right there around me. I could just draw on what was happening around me. Mm-hmm. Um, in a shadow's breath, it's a really foreign experience to me. I, I did not have – I had a very safe, very loving family life. Mm. I, you know, I, yes, I lived in Glen Waverley and, yes, we, I felt a bit cut off sometimes and perhaps that's the, the thing that I related to most when I was painting, um, you know, drawing a picture of, of Tessa. Mm. Um, but everything else I really had to – well, I, and, and probably the grief and, and this aspects of um, mental health that, that I was able to also draw on from my own, you know, experiences of people around me. But the, the landscape, the um, this home life that she had, all that was something I had to be very careful to get right and to make sure it felt authentic because mm-hmm. I was reaching well out of my experience and my comfort zone. So I would say, um, I mean, and Tessa paints that she her main sort of expression of her you know her way out I suppose emotionally was always her creative her creativity and it was visual arts it's painting and drawing and and I am you know truly lacking any skill whatsoever (laughs) in the art in the visual arts like I I am not a visual person I actually have um I remember reading I love beautifully put together children's books I really do but I also realized that when I'm reading when I used to read them to my kids 
I would not look at the pictures. Like I just didn't even notice them. I, I not oh. when I'm telling, not as part of the story. I would look at them as a visual thing separately. But when I was reading the story, I looked at the words, and I often <laughs> would get to the end of a book and think, "That doesn't make any sense. Well, that doesn't end." <laughs> and my kids would point out to me because the the answer or the you know the the reveal or whatever the information yeah. was in the picture that I completely missed. Yeah. So it really having to create. To put myself in the space of this of Tessa, who loves painting and drawing, and and you know is that is her the thing that she um, escapes to. Having to also be able to technically describe it, it was really mm. challenging. It was really challenging for me. Yeah, I so get it. yeah, it was. Um, you um, teach creative writing at the Australian Writers Centre. What do you enjoy about teaching creative writing? Oh, there's a there's a couple of things that stand out for me. Um, one is I really love the people. I, you know, I don't know if you'd screen or what, but we've just always <laughs> had great people. I don't know how it works, but we've always had fabulous people, like really engaged. They really want to be there. They bounce off each other. They feed off each other. The energy is always really great. So, just you know, as a as a human who likes other humans, it's a lovely space to be in. Um, so that's separate from the content itself. But I think probably um, the other thing I really love is that it actually reminds me, it forces me to think about um, my own writing practice more consciously. It reminds me, um, you know, of tricks and, you know, devices, strategies, things that I might have forgotten. It forces me to remind myself of these. This is a way that you can write through a problem, or this is a way that you know. This is a great way of building a character when you're not sure if you know them. And and here's a here's a really good plot device you can try when you know you feel like you've run out of choices. That kind of a thing. It's a mate. You know, it's like when you're teaching somebody to drive and you sort of remember <laughs> all these bad habits you've developed. It's. I, I really find um, it. It's very useful in making me a better writer. Mm. Um, and that was really unexpected. I don't, I don't know that I realised that would happen in the process. And finally, what's your advice to aspiring writers who want to be like, you know, who want to have their book, their third book novel out one day <laughs> or even their first? Yeah, right. Well, it's a tough gig, that's for sure. Um, and <laughs> I wouldn't recommend, don't get in, in it for the money. That will be my first advice. Um, but honestly, it's, I think the most important things you can do are, are to read widely and to try to write even a little bit as often as you can. I, I'd say every day, but I certainly aren't able to do that all of the time. But even if you can put to get put down, you know, 15, 20 minutes set aside to, to just have a bit of a scribble, it can actually just get you in the habit of um, just thinking on the page rather than keeping it all in your head. But the one piece of advice that I always um, give students when at the beginning of every class is not so much to write what you know because, well, you know, often what we know is our day job and probably the thing we don't love most in the world, um, you know, but what, write something that you love or that matters deeply mm. and matters deeply to you because there's, it's a long process if you're going to write, try to write a book. And so you need to have something you connect with in a really powerful way to push, to push through those, um, those tough, lonely days. Um, but also because at the end of it, that's where your authenticity comes through. I think that's where the best writing comes through. Mm. On that note, thank you so much for your time today, Nicole. Thanks for having me, Val. 
I think if I could summarize this whole series, it would be exactly that. Write what you love. That's really where the magic comes from, isn't it? Well, I was blown away by that mammoth day that Nicole talked about where she wrote 13,000 words in one day. That's just nuts. But as she said, it really broke the spine of the story. Sometimes you just have to go that completely bonkers, extra crazy mile if that's what you need to break a tough part of your story. Nicole regularly presents the popular course Creative Writing Stage 1 at the Australian Writers' Centre, and it's ideal for anyone who wants to explore the world of fiction writing. You'll learn all the magical ingredients that go into a compelling story. It doesn't matter what stage you're at with your writing. This course will help launch your new creative self. So go to writerscentercomau slash creative writing to learn more. That's writerscentercomau slash creative writing. We're really lucky to have Nicole presenting for us at the Australian Writers' Centre. As she said, she just loves the interaction and the people she gets to meet. Plus, it helps with her own writing, so wins all round. If you want to find a writing community that could be just the tribe you're looking for, go to writerscentre.com.au. 